welcome to another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast, brought to you by, as usual, Courtroom Sciences, www.courtroomsciences.com, all of your litigation support needs. Very special guest today from way, way over out west, not in Florida, way out in Arizona, Tucson, Arizona, Heather Bonke. Heather, how are you doing today? Very well, and yourself? I um, it's been a long day, but I'm so happy that I'm so happy that you're on the show. I'm so happy that you contacted me because we have something kind of crazy to discuss. I mean, it's really insane, isn't it? Now, hold on. We're not going to jump in there yet. But if what we talk about starts happening in other places, it's going to be nothing but trouble. And I'm anxious to hear what your opinions are on it and the uh, the entire defense bar of Arizona, because I imagine that you're bouncing off the walls. But first, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, your practice, um, uh, and the firm, because I really like to hear about the types of cases uh, that you work on. Yeah, sure. So just broadly, um, Gus Rosenfeld is a pretty much an all-purpose practice. Um, we do all practice areas except for criminal and family law, for the most part. Um, and my practice and my practice group is mainly um, healthcare, medical malpractice, long-term care defense work, um, and also some uh, business work with healthcare providers. And so uh, my tagline is defending the healthcare heroes, um, because that's certainly what they are. And we very much enjoy working with our healthcare providers out here because they're really putting their lives down on the line for real for people every day. And um, I love working with people like that and, and giving helping them to do their best to help um, the patients that they're they're yeah. they're helping, and also to live their best lives as well. So um, that's our goal and our passion, and that's what we're doing here at Gus Rosenfeld. Awesome, um, I do a lot of healthcare litigation myself, and you saw me speak recently at a healthcare seminar, correct? That was in Vegas. Yeah, at the uh, DRI. Um, uh, long term. Care, long, but uh, long term, long term is long term care, right? Yeah. Yes, it was. You can tell our audience how great that was, if you'd like. I mean, it was a wonderful um, presentation <laughs> that you put on. But every presentation that I've seen and heard you put on has been absolutely wonderful. So well, there's thank a you. That is my <laughs> that is my passion. Next to podcasting, my passion is speaking to share <clears throat> share all the information I have. Before we hop into the Arizona uh, Supreme Court decision, which is 100% the most insane thing I've ever heard in 18 years. Um, a constant topic that we have on the podcast, I'd like your input, um, input for it, is tell me about some of the challenges that you face with preparing health, specifically healthcare witnesses for deposition and trial testimony. Cause I do, I do a lot of that. And I ran, I run into from the physician side, I run into a lot of anger a lot of frustration, irritability, particularly from your surgeons. <clears throat> and then from a lot of the uh, nursing staff, um, a lot of that's more, um, you know, sadness, anxiety, regret, guilt, uh, a lot of, you know, on the other end of the emotional spectrum. Uh, tell us about um, some of the experiences that, that you've had <clears throat> and how you deal with the emotional healthcare witnesses, because many of those cases uh, do have very sad outcomes and it's um it's just it's difficult to deal with as a healthcare provider it absolutely is difficult to deal with and you know with a lot of the long-term care facilities that i deal with you're dealing with nurses you're dealing with yeah. cnas too yeah. so not just um perhaps you know the 
a more higher educated or sophisticated um, healthcare provider like surgeons or you know other physicians, but also people you know who maybe have just started their nursing practice and and you know at as a CNA or something like that, and they've never been involved with the law before, and they've never you know known that this was really part of healthcare. Um, and witness preparation is really one way that my team tries to differentiate itself from other teams because we really spend a lot of time and effort trying to make our people feel comfortable and, and giving them the tools that they need in order to understand what's going on. And the more that they understand what's going on and the more tools we give them to deal with what's going on, the more comfortable that they're going to be once they get in front of a, an aggressive plaintiff's lawyer during a deposition or a trial. Um, and, you know, and then we have people that, you know, we, we repeatedly have to see. And um, a big problem that we face, too, is that these people don't want to talk to us. They don't know, yeah. are, you, are you helping me or are you going to hurt me? I'm just going to ignore you. I'm They're terrified. You. They're terrified of you. Yes, absolutely. And, and we, <laughs> we go through a lot to try to get them to come around. I mean, we'll even send investigators out to their house to explain to them, hey, they're on your side, yeah. they're there to help you, they're, you know, there's, you know, if you talk to them, they're going to hold your hand through the process, you're going to be okay, everything's going to be fine. Um, and so it's, you know, it's a serious challenge. And I have to give credit to my staff, because I have an excellent assistant who is brilliant at dealing with, you know, people making that first contact, yeah. making them feel comfortable. And all that is super important. I totally agree. You know, what the healthcare industry is very guilty of <clears throat> is fueling the, the reptile plaintiff attack with all their, their ridiculous safety language that they put on their billboards and they put on their website. Oh, the websites are the worst. <clears throat> and then that's, that's fueled across examine. Um, witnesses. I, one of the main challenges I have with both physicians and nurses is, is getting through their head that while it may be all over the billboard and the website, um, patient safety is really not their top priority. That's not how they practice. That's not even how they're trained. <clears throat> is this something that's important? Absolutely. But their clinical decision-making like, okay, what's the safest thing I do here? No, it's what's the most appropriate thing I do for this patient at this point in time, given these clinical circumstances, how do, how do you how do you get that through their head when you're preparing them for testimony? Because, man, I've had a lot of nurses almost get up and walk out of the room like, no, 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 safety is always my top. I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. This is. And then when I finally get to them, they finally get it and they go, oh, and I show them some videos of some bad videos. <laughs> how, how do you get that through their head? Because, you know, they're like pre-wired with their training and their continuing education, they get, it gets pounded in their head 24 seven. Right. And I think um, a lot of it, I just start with the very basics. Like what is the standard of care, yeah, right? It's not safety. So, exactly. The standard of care is what a reasonable nurse would do or, or CNA or doctor or whomever under the circumstances. And I always yeah. use the fingers so that I can remind them over and over again, you know, and it depends on what those circumstances are. And so if you have, you know, somebody, you'll have somebody in a real world, you know, if you're a nurse, you, you got somebody puking over here and, um, you know, coding over there and maybe, you know, I have a call light needing help to go to the restroom over yeah. here. And what are you going to do? Um, what is reasonable under the circumstances? Um, and who are you working with right now? And um, what is going on with the other people around them? Um, and, and so how do we know what's really standard of care and what is really, you know, the, the, 
the safety thing, you know, it's, it's almost like, um, you want to do what is what is fair and reasonable. And of course, it's safety is important. And that's yeah. one of the things that we consider there when making our decision. However, we we are taught that we have our own judgment because we've all gone to school and we've all been taught things. And so we have to use that in evaluating the situation in order to determine what is what is reasonable. God, you sound like you went to one of my talks and you just repeated. You just oh, repeated right? We could give a talk together. We, we could, could. Tell, we could, wonderful. well, while you th think about that, I'm sure there's something that we could, we could uh, get together on and, and uh, uh, play off of each other. I'd, I'd love to do that. So keep that in mind. Now on, on most podcasts, I typically go off on a rant early on. Cause I have to like get this, you know, I have to blow some steam. Right. And I'm going to do one right now. This is unplanned. Cause I promised myself I wasn't going to do it. I changed my mind. I'm going to rant. And I've had this rant before the, these healthcare systems, have to like the marketing department needs to really talk to risk management because the marketing of these healthcare systems just fuels the plaintiff attorneys. It's really unbelievable. And the, again, the websites, the billboards, the stuff plastered on the walls, I mean, they're fueling litigation against them. And I've seen several doctors and nurses get cross-examined with, well, here's what's on the website. Do you agree with this? And you read it and you're like, how am I going to not agree with this? Really, really bad stuff, and I wish the um, I wish the healthcare industry would get their heads out of their asses, because that's the that is the problem, and that is the Kanaski rant for the day. Now let's get to our main topic, because when I first read this, I like dropped, I like spit out my drink. I was like, wait, wait, whoa, what? This this cannot be real. But I was reading an article. It was uh, I think it's a couple months ago. <laughs> Somebody sent it to me and it said that the Arizona Supreme Court had essentially decided to do away with peremptory strikes. That's and I read that I'm going that come on, like, like, come on, this is, this is from the onion. This, this article's from the onion. It can't be, it, this can't be happening. And now it's, now it's happened as of what January 1st. So can you get, first give us some of the back, like how in the hell does this happen? What's the backstory? And then walk us through the changes that are going to be made because if this starts to spread to other states, it's going to be mass chaos. Right. And I don't know how basic you want me to go right now, but you know, right. as you know, probably um, when a jury gets called in, then uh, either side gets to ask, both sides get to ask questions. Um, yeah. And then they get, their whole point is to try to determine whether the, a juror is demonstrably unable to um, separate their preconceived notions from the case at hand. And so you're trying to find out what their preconceived notions are and can this person be fair and impartial, put those feelings aside and apply the facts to the law as as the judge provides it to them. And, you know, we all have biases. Absolutely. We all have, you know, concerns and worries. And a lot of times it's just whether or not people are a good fit for that case. Sure. Like perhaps somebody who, you know, has been in a victim of sexual assault is not really going to be the best person to yeah. be on, you know, the jury for a sexual assault case, um, things like that. But they may be a great person for a medical malpractice case. Um, and so, you, you know, the sides go back and forth and um, people get struck for cause. So if it's determined based on the questioning from the judge and then both sides um, that a certain person, um, a potential juror is unable to separate their feelings um, from what's going to be presented in the case, 
then they're dismissed and another juror takes their place. At some point, and we in Arizona usually try to get this done in a half day, um, they will will certify the jury as being sufficient for based on cause. And then in a civil case, and I'm not going to talk about criminal because I don't do criminal, but in civil case in Arizona, we get four peremptory strikes, and that was until January 1st. And so what we do with those is we can strike people and you go, you know, plaintiff first, defendant, plaintiff, defendant, and, you know, until your, your strikes are all done. You can um, strike them for any reason except for a discriminatory reason. And I don't know if you've ever heard of the Batson challenge, but the Absolutely. case back, yeah, the, the Batson, I think it was versus Kennedy um, back in the 80s, um, you know, said you can't discriminate when you utilize a peremptory challenge. And so if somebody challenges that, it's called a Batson challenge. And um, you have to come up with a reason that is not discriminatory for why you want to dismiss that particular juror. And so once um, everyone dismisses everyone, then you certify each side says, yes, this, you know, is a certified jury. And then you move on to um, presenting your case. So <laughs> peremptory challenges are often where cases are won and lost. Yeah. So what, <laughs> what was the court's rationale for eliminating these? Right. Um, it was there were two of our esteemed judges um, decided that um, potentially you can not have a fair and impartial jury because you cannot avoid the biases that go into um, the decision making as to who you're going to strike. Um, so like, for example, back in 2008, there was a case called Snyder versus um, Louisiana. It was a criminal murder trial where the defendant was African-American. And after all the cause strikes were done and the peremptory challenges were utilized, all the African-American people who were on the jury were struck. And so that went up on appeal and it ended up getting reversed and remanded back to trial court. Um, and so in fairness, yeah, I mean, can people you know, use their biases? Absolutely, but I think there are excellent and good reasons why you need to do that. And that's part of what I really wanna talk about um, today, but the whole thing was basically they don't want the discrimination um, utilized um, in, in the peremptory challenges. Wow. Do you think, I mean, doesn't this affect both sides? It does. It, it does definitely. In fact, I mean, I think the bottom line, number one thing to all of this is that it's going to be more costly and more time consuming for all sides. Um, and that, in fact, I just went to a, had a mediation and, um, you know, Wynn Sammons was our esteemed mediator. And that's a plug for him, shamelessly. He's excellent. Um, but he was talking about a lot of these issues and the fact that we really, both sides, need to consider now how time consuming and costly it is going to be to go to jury trial. And that is not only based on, on the cost, and, but also the uncertainty. Um, that, because what yeah. is going to happen? Well, yeah, I think um, this is going to be, it's kind of like when the vaccinations came out. Like I kind of sat back and said, yeah, go get it. Let me know how this works out for you. Uh, I didn't want to be the first, you know, 10 people in line for that. <clears throat> I want to kind of sit back um, and, 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 and wait, uh, have, have there, I mean, I know this is, let's see, it's, it's, uh, it's the 12th of uh, January. So there probably just hasn't been enough time for a, 
a sample size to see this, but, but is everybody just kind of anxious, anxiously waiting on both sides to see, God, what's going to happen if people actually go to trial. And then as things start playing out, it probably is going to impact, impact your strategy and impact the discussions with your, with your clients. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, things are already playing out. In fact, I spoke to um, a, a plaintiff's lawyer in town who tried a case back in 1977. And the case was called um, Wasco versus Frankel. And in that case, um, he had, it was a medical malpractice case. And I want to tell you what the juror said and what the attorney said and what the judges ultimately decided. The, um, it was a medical malpractice for a, a spine operation. And the um, potential jurors said that, you know, anyone who undergoes a disc operation and can get up and about should be thankful for the help he received from his doctor. And the attorney said, can you disregard your opinions and fairly consider the evidence? And he was asked this repeatedly in various different ways. Yeah. And the juror says, no, it would be difficult. And the judge like pretty much said, you know, Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so, um, you know, can, are you, you are telling me that you can't follow the directions that the court gives you and yep. you can't apply the facts that I give you and or the, the, to the law that I give you at the end of this case and, and render an impartial decision. Okay. <laughs> yeah, who's who's so, going to say, yeah. Who's going to say, I mean, so, yeah. and by the way, there's nothing that infuriates me more than judges that rehabilitate witnesses that or um, um, jurors that I, <laughs> I want to strike. Um, so, but, but let me tell you the yeah. second part of this. So oh, I spoke to him the other day and he had a trial two weeks ago with a judge who bent over backwards, trying to rehabilitate someone who was clearly should be struck for cause. And he brought up that case and he's like, your honor, we really need to consider this. And especially when we're not going to have peremptory challenges to, to fall back on anymore. Um, we can't, bend over backwards and, and do everything we can to try to rehabilitate and keep people who really don't belong on the case. But unfortunately, that's what's happening. And I'll tell you why I think it's particularly happening is it's partly because of COVID. Because during COVID, we're not able to get all of the jurors that we want to get yeah, into, that's true. into Poitier, right? Um, because people <clears throat> show up or they, you know, have whatever reasons they need to, you know, be dismissed for, you know, taking care of their parents or themselves or kids or whatever's going on. So our, um, uh, the number of people that we have available is reduced. So they want to make sure that they have enough people and they make sure people are on, on board, right? So part of, I, I think also they think that it's going to reduce judicial resources um, by, you know, shrinking the number of people required for voir dire. Wow. And, um, you know, but the, the detriment is going to be bending over backwards to keep people on there. And then you're going to have appeals like crazy. Well, that was my next question. What, how does this affect the appellate process? Because anybody that loses is going to be like, well, this is bullshit. I mean, yes. <laughs> right? yes. I mean well, oh. in fact, that happened in, um, uh, in my colleague's Wasco or Wasco, Wasco trial um, back in the 70s. Was, he got a retrial and um, he got a plaintiff's verdict and it was originally a defense verdict. Wow. So absolutely, these things are going to be appealed. Um, right now, we have a slew of um, criminal cases that kind of gives a, give us some direction. But of course, they're all decided before the loss of the peremptory challenges. But one of the, the I think, um, instruction um, that they give us is... 
we need to make sure that we dispute the fairness of the voir dire, or excuse me, the veneer at the time um, when they yes. ask you, do you certify yeah. you know, them as being impartial? We have to object and say no. <laughs> if we do that and we're able to show some sort of evidence that if we hadn't, you know, if we didn't hadn't had that person, maybe we would have gotten a different result. Yeah. Problem is, it's almost impossible to show that the result would have been different. Yeah. Um, unless you show just severe judicial indiscretion um, in deciding to keep a juror. So you're going to have to make sure that your voir dire is um, um, is very um, tight, specific. You have you you go as far as you can go in order to prove that somebody cannot sit because of cause. Um, and then also you're really going to need a court reporter recorded. Wow. Now, is this for both state and federal court? Um, this is state right now. I did not go into what's going on in the federal court. Um, I believe so though, is the U S Supreme or excuse me, Arizona Supreme court. So no, it may, may not be the federal also. So that'd be, I mean, federal, court jury selections a, a nightmare because <laughs> yeah. uh because that's not half a day that's half an hour <laughs> if, if you're if you're lucky and that's why i think so many uh it's so challenging to 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 do jury selection in federal court and, lar and largely a lot of federal judges do it themselves they don't even let you ask or you have to submit um they have to submit questions so have, have you as a firm kind of gotten your folks together and kind of had meetings about like like here's how we're going to change our, our our jury selection going forward to try to be on the same page and and uh, and ha what, what has the defense bar really said or or, or, or done about this well, you know, as usual, the defense bar is not as organized as the plaintiff's bar. Um, and yes. we don't really have a, a firm decision as to what we're going to do. It's going to have to be client by client because yeah. what's going to have to happen now is I think that jury cons consultants are going to be crucial in every case that goes to trial. Me. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, we're going to need you because yeah. um, everything we do, every question that we ask, yeah has to be, um, you know, it has to really hit the mark. Yep. The plaintiffs are, are going to have keywords that they're using in order to, you know, muster up the, um, uh, the emotions. They have all day seminars on this sort of thing. Yeah. We're going to have to do that as well. And the juror questionnaire is something that is is being put into play as well and i've seen a couple of them that have come down in the last you know few weeks um and they're they're put in these excel format like wow. like cells where if you're not a an expert at doing excel like yeah. opening the cells closing the cells you know messing around in there um, it's, it's a nightmare. And, um, so not only we're going to have to make sure that our juror questionnaires are just as sneaky, perhaps in the emotional grabbing or in, you know, what we yeah. need to do in order to sway people in, in our direction, but we're going to need to make sure that, um, those, those juror questionnaires are read and read quickly. It's going to be a time issue. We're not going to yeah. have the time That's to review tough. them. We're getting them like the night before trial begins or, yeah the morning of and you know i don't i don't know how they even 
conglomerate the information either. I'm, I'm thinking yeah. that what happens is the jurors write it, send it to the court, and then the, the court puts it in this Excel document. That's awful. So, I hate right. Excel. I could right. go on a rant. I could go on a rant on Excel. I could. <laughs> it's like the worst program ever. <clears throat> well, I think our listeners in the other 49 states are very glad that they're not you uh, right, <laughs> right now. Because <laughs> really, you're in the Petri dish. I mean, you're the experiment. And um, if other states adopted this, they'd probably be mass panic. Speaking of mass panic, <laughs> um, I'm sure you've talked to your healthcare clients about this. What has there been, what, what has their response been like? Yeah, they appreciate the fact that this is going to be, it's going to create cases that are more complex. Um, you're going to have more mistrials. You're going to have more appeals. Um, finality may be difficult to obtain in a short period of time or in the time that we were used to expecting it. Um, there's going to be longer de deliberation time, more time in trial. Um, so the, the costs and complexity of going to trial and, and after trial is going to be bigger. So whether or not we settle may be, you know, it's another, another discussion that we haven't had to have before yeah. uh, based on old paradigms. <laughs> well, this, I would argue that this, um, and yeah, I think jury consulting is going to be very important. I also think, um, which is something we've been preaching for quite a while. I think um, uh, jury research, mock jury research early in a case to determine is this one we really need to go to war over, or is this one we, you know, we, we kind of do want to settle, particularly if we're getting damages figures that aren't so bad, um, to, to do that homework early before mediation, because it seems like, I, I mean, I've always said that mediation is really, that, that's really the battleground that we've been on here recently. It's really not the, statistically, it's not the courtroom, but nobody wants to get hit by a nuclear verdict, but you also don't want to sign off on a nuclear um, settlement. So I think the use of the jury research is really important early in a case and figuring out, you know, what, what do jurors feel? Yeah. You know, how do they feel about my case? Um, what types of things are they saying? What, what do they think about the healthcare system? When they think about this case on liability on damages and what that would also do, um, that's really the, the only scientific way to develop the juror questionnaire to be scientifically valid and reliable. <clears throat> you know, you can put anything on a questionnaire, but if it's not, valid you're not measuring what you think you're you're measuring so i think the only way to do that would be to increase the amount of jury research being done look at your questionnaires be able to come up with new and, and more effective questions so i'll tell you what that like you just said you, you you read these other questions from the the plaintiff's bar what do you think they're doing they're doing jury research to figure out what questions are going to be <laughs> predictive of outcome and if the defense doesn't get their shit together um you know, then there's going to be a, it's not going to be a, it's not going to be a fair fight. Um, well, thank you for all of that information. I want to end on a different question. <clears throat> um, how do you, cause this is, <laughs> I've got several cases like this now and it's not pretty. How do you deal with it? Cause in, in medical malpractice, you often have multiple defendants and oftentimes defendants like to point fingers at each other. How, how, how do you, how do you, deal with with that because that because that's that's a plaintiff attorney's dream right that's that's the lottery ticket right we obviously we haven't we have a non-party at fault deadline in arizona which is 150 days after filing final answer and 
we do evaluate that, but we're also at the same time looking at, at hiring our causation experts early so that we can really determine whether or not, okay, if somebody possibly maybe could have done something differently or better, yeah. um, what was it really a cause? Did it contribute? What is, what is really the, the cost of mm doing of, of pointing this finger that's huge also, yeah absolutely um then we go back to the client and we say what is going to be the the damage to the relationship that yeah. you have with this health, other healthcare provider should we believe that it's important enough to point the finger um and then is it going to be a situation where we're pointing the finger right back at ourselves yeah because we kind of did something similar yeah. to, you know, the, our client did something similar to what a co-defendant's client did. Sure. So there are a lot of considerations that we go into, but we, we try to make it, we, we make every effort to not point the finger unless we absolutely have to. I agree with that, but sometimes, <laughs> sometimes that just doesn't happen. Well, Heather Bakke, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I definitely want to do a talk with you. So we'll figure out what organization we can do that. And I think there's all kinds of things that we could share uh, with the uh, MedMal audience, either in the state of Arizona or, or nationally, that they would get a lot out of. But thank you so much for being on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me, Bill. I appreciate it. It was excellent. And, and absolutely keep in touch to our audience members. Thank you again. I'm Dr. Bill Kanaski. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast. We'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>